Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today, we're going to look at Season 4, Episode 5 of Star Trek Discovery, entitled The Examples. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Rodney Cup, and I'm the philosophy professor. And I'm Michael Merrick. I'm the media professor. You can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. A pinned post there has links to platforms for your podcast app, or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. And Rodney, this is the holiday season as we're recording this, and we want to be sure to send out greetings to our listeners, regardless of their traditions of faith, for the many different holidays and religious festivals that happen at this time of year. Now, maybe you're listening to this at some other time, but as we record it, it's the weekend before Christmas, and uh, as I said, many other traditions of faith have celebrations and holidays and events at this time of year. So happy holidays, everyone. And before we start our discussion of the episode, we're going to have a brief description of it uh, that does contain some spoilers. Um, we think, though, that there may still be some surprises for you in the episode if you watch it after listening to our podcast. It's not a blow-by-blow -blow summary. So to take that away, here is Professor Michael Merrick. Okay. The anomaly, now called the DMA, winks out disappears from where it was, reappearing a thousand light years away. Scans show that some sort of device is at the center, meaning that the DMA is an artificial creation. They don't know by whom, but they name the unknown species 10C. It's aimed at an asteroid colony right now and will likely wipe it out, so Discovery and some other ships are dispatched to save the colonists with only four hours to spare. But the colony has a few prisoners serving life sentences as examples of what happens to wrongdoers, even though all but one of them committed fairly minor offenses. Burnham and Book head off to save them, while the rest of the colonists are beamed to safety. They have to jump through all kinds of technobabble plot devices, but eventually they save the colonists and the prisoners, except for one of the prisoners, Felix, who committed murder, and he insists on remaining as the asteroids are destroyed as part of his atonement. Meanwhile, a tech genius, Ruan Tarka, comes on board to perform a dangerous experiment to try to understand the DMA technology. He and Stamets don't get along because they are a lot like each other. Also, Culber is having trouble dealing with his role as counselor because the people he's trying to help have such big issues. So that is a super brief summary, lots of details that uh, you'll see if you haven't watched the episode yet when it finally comes around time. That was very brief. So in a bit, we're going to talk about some philosophy, some themes and morals, but there are quite a few items here, I think, that seemed important to us that we'd like to discuss and mention those first. And we can't help by mentioning from early in the episode the USS Janeway and the NSS T'Pau. I assume that stands for Navarre Starship, NSS. Mm. The Janeway seems to be inspired by the Vulcan ship design that goes all the way back to Star Trek Enterprise, 
with the kind of the vertical ring-shaped warp emitter. The Tapau looks like one of the new style Federation ships that replaced the traditional saucer with kind of a horizontal ring. Hmm. Also, early in the episode, we see a, a star map, and I'm sorry, but it doesn't match real astronomy. For example, hmm. Wolf 359 is is one of the closest star systems to Earth, other than a couple of uh, brown dwarfs. It's the closest after the Centauri system and Bernard star, but the map shows it way farther away from Earth, farther away than Andoria and Navarre, for example. Wow, that's unfortunate. Also on the map, I mean, there are lots of little Easter eggs on the map. Denobula is there, Zatar is there, and of course, Argelius. Have you been missing Argelius, Rodney? Mm, I'm not sure I remember Argelius. Yeah. Oh, Argelius is from the original series Wolf in the Fold. Remember, oh, okay. Where Jack the Ripper was in space now, but he's okay. not on Argelius anymore. I mean, right. since Next Generation, they've been talking about Ryza as kind of the popular pleasure planet destination. And since Jack the Ripper isn't on Argelius anymore, I don't see why Ryza might be more popular. Uh, but note that Ruan Tarka is apparently from Ryza. He mentions being from Ryza. So he claims. So, so he, he claims, claims, yes. One thing I wanted to point out here, and I guess I've, I have a few problems with this episode, minor quibbles I'm going to sprinkle in here. At one point, uh, Burnham says to the Admiral Vance, she says, it seems to me the first step would be to, to figure out how the DMA works. Then we can trace the tech back to its creators, whoever they are. Now, I mean, everyone in the episode makes this assumption that if they just figure out how this tech works, they'll find its creators. And I, I don't know why I should buy this, particularly if it's an unknown species. How could figuring out how the tech works lead them to its creators? I yeah, don't get I, that. I agree. It's a little spotty. I mean, we might be able to rule out some species that they don't do this. But oh, good point. it might help narrow it down. I have trouble believing that Bing, one species, will pop up. And particularly since, as you point out, this may be one we've never had contact with before. Right. They they call them the, as you said, the unknown species 10C. Uh, more quibbles here. Why assume it's an unknown species? Now, they mentioned a few possibilities here. Maybe it's because no known species could have the power needed to produce the DMA, or maybe the intent. I thought maybe the Organians could throw something like this together, but why would they do that? I took unknown to be unidentified, you know, and oh, I saying see. it could end up being one we know, and they mentioned a few, but it could be one that we've never heard of before. So oh, it's okay. just for the moment it is unknown, and apparently, you know, 10C, you count backwards, 9Z, 9Y, 9X, count all the way back down to 1A of how many unknown species there have ever been that we've encountered. Who knows? I don't know why they came up with 10C. I, that doesn't seem to have more meaning to me. Yeah, me neither. But that makes a lot more sense, unidentified. <laughs> okay, but I think I have an idea here. In the Picard episode, Broken Pieces, we learned that the admonition was created two or 300,000 years ago by beings who could bring eight stars together, which mm -hmm. seemed incredible to me at the time, and put a planet in the center of them, right? Now, if these beings could move stars around like that, couldn't they create the DMA? I mean, and what if they're still around? 
They didn't. They didn't mention that possibility. Um, there have been a, a very small number of species we've encountered in Star Trek over the years that might have this potential. Uh, Admiral Vance mentions the Metrons from the original series, Arena. the Nacine. Those are the that's the species of the caretaker from from Voyager. The Q, right. of course, mainly they were Easter eggs. They did mention he did mention the Iconians that that are still around and other than the automated outpost in the last outpost in next generation first season i think the only iconians that are still around are in game universes i think but uh yes it takes a lot but we don't know about the technology we're assuming it takes a huge amount of power and we don't know where the power comes from i assume that that will be explained at some point I bet they're going to say it somehow gets pulled out of subspace, not power from normal space, but out of subspace, because subspace is a cool word to use in every other sentence. <laughs> and uh, every time you turn around, they're saying something has a subspace component. Dilithium, we learned last season, has a subspace component. That's right. And That's the right. Uh, doesn't the spore drive, doesn't that go through some kind of, some kind of layer of subspace? I, I don't know. So, but, you know, we, we'll, we'll have to see. I'm guessing that they will invent somebody completely new to do this, but who knows. We did, however, as you point out, learn that the DMA has a device in the middle, and that's, that sounds a little bit like V'ger. Didn't you think it sounded a little bit like V'ger? Remember well, I'm that thinking when, that now. That when we first encountered it, it had a big cloud around it that slowly dissipated as V'ger got closer to Earth. Of course, this DMA is apparently way bigger than V'ger's cloud was. And it apparently somehow creates an artificial wormhole, and we don't know where the wormhole goes to, but the power just takes way more power than Discovery could supply, even for a miniature version that Tarka creates, which presumably would take a miniature amount of power, although although we don't really know. Didn't you say you'd need a, a hypergiant star to power the DMA, or its equivalent? Yeah, which makes me suspect that they're not going to be getting it from normal space in this universe, from subspace, somehow channel it in from a parallel universe, something, who knows. Hmm. So, And as kind of I said, in Star Trek, it always sounds cooler if we add the word subspace to anything we're talking about. So the artificial wormhole also apparently causes a subspace rupture, whatever that means. Right. So again, you know, maybe they're somehow pulling energy out of subspace, and we'll find out about it in, a, in an avalanche of technobabble at some point in a future episode. <laughs> Speaking of Ruan Tarka, have you ever read John Carter of Mars? No, I have not. By Edgar Rice Burroughs. John Carter's kind of like best friend on Mars is a Martian man named Tars Tarka. And I just wonder if there was any inspiration there. Uh, Ruan Tarka and Tars Tarka don't look anything alike. Tars Tarka was green and had more arms than, than Ruan Tarka did. Well, maybe as the season progresses, similarities will arise. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Another kind of issue with this episode is that during, if you will, the thrilling finale, they only have six minutes before transporting out of the prison will be impossible. But in those last six minutes, they waste a lot of time on talking, talking and talking and talking and talking. And the writers have done this before, and it never works very well. Something where something's going to happen 
in not just a few minutes, but a few seconds, and we're having you know, nice conversations about whatever it is. You know, it's 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 a good time to present philosophy, maybe, but when you're on a deadline, it doesn't really work from the storytelling. Yeah, I noticed this also uh, in a different part of this episode. Uh, near the beginning, we're told they have four hours to evacuate Radbeck. And after that, he says they have to begin evacuations immediately. And then they start talking about, well, how are we going to deal with the panic that's going to be caused when they discover this is artificial? And who might have created the DMA and this Ruan Tarka guy? What's he going to do? You know, as if time is not not of the essence, right? Yeah, not not really a sense of urgency there. Yeah. And if, if that stuff were really happening to you, your adrenaline would be spiking and you'd be going right to it. So. Yeah, it's weird. And I have another problem also. So Stamets and Tarka, they're performing this experiment. And weirdly, they're acting as if they have to do the experiment now. They just cannot wait to do it later after the evacuations and in a way that doesn't endanger discovery, maybe at a different facility where they can draw more power. I didn't understand the urgency to complete it right then and there. They can just do it again. It was weird. And you remember the, it's not quite the same as the six minute deadline, but the containment field is yes, dropping right. and, and <laughs> so, you know, dropping, dropping, dropping. And we know to the second, to the exact second when the containment field is going to fail and, and Saru shuts it off at five seconds. This, this, you know, it's, it really kind of feels artificial. These deadlines and things like that, very few things can be predicted down to the second or the microsecond when something is going to, for example, change from possible to impossible or blow up or something like that. It's it's not really possible to be that precise. Not even for Spock? Couldn't he do I, I it? I think probably not even. For, he would still give you a, a figure for plus or minus error, I think. Oh, okay. There is always uncertainty. I've, I've actually published on the topic of chaos theory and nothing is precisely predictable because there are too many factors that can that can get in the way. It's a writer's technique to build up suspense and tension, but it's often in Star Trek annoyingly artificial. If they really want to build up tension, the we don't know how much time we have so hurry would be a lot more realistic. Ooh, I like On the that. other hand, that wouldn't leave as much room for the talk, 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 talk. So... Yeah, true. But, you know, we don't know how much time we've got. Boy, that would be much more effective if you want to build tension, it seems you to know, me. We could be in the ballpark, you know, seconds, you know, it, it's coming up. It's getting close. I can't tell you just when, so hurry. But we'll do our best to hang in there just like Scotty does. But, yeah, you know, you never know exactly. So I was also wondering where the heck were Kayla and Owo in this episode? Yeah, There were... We only really got, I think, one brief wide-angle shot of the bridge, and there were other people sitting at their stations, too. Where were they? I was wondering that, too. I, that, was, that was weird. And I guess while we're, while we're at it, uh, there, there's another thing that bugs me. <laughs> Book is not a member of Starfleet. Why is he going on these away missions with Burnham? That seems weird. And another thing that bugs me. Why are Starfleet captains now leaving the ship on away teams? Didn't we do away with that in TNG wisely? Yeah, but, I mean, they're cowboys like <laughs> Kirk was, and they actually come from 10 years before Kirk was on the Enterprise. So, 
we will see in Strange New Worlds how often Captain Pike goes on away team missions, but Starfleet did make some changes there, and changes to make Starfleet function more like a Navy vessel today. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the, right. the captain yeah. leaves the ship sometimes for ceremonial occasions and things, but not go ashore places where you'll be fist fighting and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm wondering if Book has some kind of, he, he must have some kind of unofficial status because he's a navigator. True. He's, uh, he's one of only two people that can, yep. that can make discovery go with the, with the spore drive. So he's got to have some kind of relationship consultant, or something like that, even though he is not, as you say, as such a Starfleet officer. Why doesn't he just join Starfleet already? Good gravy. Maybe they have to send him to the Academy and he doesn't want to hang out with kids. I don't know. You never know. (laughs) We're obviously also supposed to wonder what that thing on the back of Tarka's neck is. A tattoo, a scar, a data port. Tarka does make one brief reference that both he and Stamets endured had endured an emerald chain neural lock so maybe that's what it is so when i saw that the first thing i thought of was that it was um where one of those emerald chain explosive control devices had been implanted oh, yeah. that we saw last uh-huh. season yeah and maybe he had it removed and, le- and it left a scar that was my theory i guess if you could put well, it that maybe, way maybe he had a bad encounter with the emerald chain too so as so many people seem to have I just have two other quick notes of things we noticed here. We note that Lieutenant Jen Reese has now been promoted to Lieutenant Commander. I had to check that. They often just refer to him as Commander, but uh, promoted to Lieutenant Commander. So that was interesting. Congratulations. Yeah, and I noticed this week, you know, the office where Culber does his counseling, it's basically a redress of the, the part of the captain's office set where the briefing table is. If you look carefully, look back and forth, they take the table out and they put the chairs in, of course. A couple of wall panels are switched out, and then they just use different lighting in the room for, uh, it's bluer, basically, for uh, when they're doing briefings at the briefing table in the captain's office, Mm -hmm. and not super warm, but a little bit warmer when Culver is doing counseling. And within the series, they're not intended to be the same room, but I'm, I'm convinced now they use the same set and just decorate it differently for the different roles that it plays. And that's, and that's common in TV series, particularly Starship, Starship-based TV series where the same room, I mean, in the original series, the transporter room was redressed to be the chapel, for example. Oh, really? The non-denominational chapel. So. I've I've read quite a bit about the original series, and that was a very common thing, yeah. wasn't it? Set yeah. dresses. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, are we? I guess we're ready to talk about the underlying meanings here, messages, morals, and the like. Well, this, and you're going to have to help me on this, being the philosopher and the ethicist. But uh, the storyline about prisoners brings up a lot of questions about mm-hmm. justice and yeah. atonement, and self-determination, and victimization. And, of course, we see Book remembering his own experience of not being able to save his family. So he is, one of the central points of the plot, is he is opposed to allowing Felix to choose for himself to remain behind. Right. Let's start talking about this uh, method of imprisonment here on Radvek. Um, 
It reminded me of that Next Generation first season episode, Justice. Their method of dealing with criminals sounds a lot like that uh, on Rubicon 3 in that episode. Th- that's the planet of the blonde joggers, right? That's right. Yeah, okay, that's right. good. good. Um, <laughs> so these examples, what do we know about them? Well, we, the six offenders chosen to demonstrate the cost of misbehavior. That's what the magistrate says. He also says it's an emerald chain tradition. But anyway, uh, it it's great because it deters crime, which is good. The problem is that the punishment is just not proportional to the crime, right? One of them was in there for stealing food, the other for passing counterfeit latinum, and the other for counting cards. And I just feel like, you know, morally speaking, you know, when you punish wrongdoers, you're doing something that's normally wrong, right? You're, you're not allowed to you know, imprison people and the like. So it needs to be justified morally somehow. And I feel like, well, there are two routes you can do this in. First of all, you can justify it in terms of deterrence. You know, by imprisoning these folks, we deter them and uh, from committing crimes and people who would otherwise commit crimes, right? But also, you know, the punishment has to be proportional to the crime, right? You can't give people life sentences for counting cards. And that's the problem here. You, you know, you need both the deterrence and the proportionality, right? Yeah. Reminds me of one of the episodes of the original Star Trek animated series. It was written by David Gerald, who is very well known in fandom. Uh, one of his characters that he writes says that intelligent species do not need punishment unless it's the only way learning can occur. And I, I also know, it also makes me think of someone I know who has been a federal prosecutor in the United States who mm-hmm. feels that the purpose of criminal sentences should be about changing behavior, not mm-hmm. punishment as such. But, you know, for example, jail time, how long does it take for the person to realize that what they did was wrong and to, to want to change behavior when they come out? I also wanted to touch on a word that Burnham used that I know I know what she meant, but I have a feeling a lot of people don't, and maybe some people just skipped over it. But Burnham mentions having respect for the agency of Felix. Yeah, and you know we know the term agency is like an office or a, a governmental unit or something like that. But uh, the way Burnham used it is not the way we usually use agency in everyday conversation. I, I think it comes from psychology. We, we use it in academia sometimes. But in this context, agency means the ability or the capacity of a person or a thing to exert power or achieve an end, which is, you know, when you talk about a, a government agency, yeah. um, you're not talking about a bureaucracy, but you're talking about an organization that can do something, that has the the ability to do something. So Burnham is saying that she had to respect the power or the right Felix had to make the decision for himself, even if she didn't really agree with him. Right. And um, so in philosophy, we call that either self-determination or autonomy. And it's a big topic in medical ethics. I say that because I'm teaching that this semester. We've been talking about it a bunch Now, nowadays, we think autonomy is very important. So, for example, we allow people to make these do not resuscitate orders and living wills, and we expect them to be respected, right? Some philosophers think that people suffering from terminal diseases 
should be allowed not not only to die, but to be given a lethal injection if that's what they want, right? So, and I know this is not Felix's situation, right? He's not dying of a, or suffering from a terminal illness, but, you know, his position, his desire to die on his own terms, to be punished in a way he sees fit, uh, is justified by this principle of autonomy, this idea that you know, rational beings ought to be allowed to make these decisions for themselves that reflect their own values. And of course, Burnham respects his autonomy. Yeah, but like I said, she doesn't really want to. She no. she feels she needs to. She does, but she wishes she could, in those six minutes remaining, she wishes she could change his mind or she wishes yeah. he had he'd made a different decision. And so I think she's troubled about it too, but she does ultimately respect his ability, his right to make that call. Yeah. And I think that's to her credit. I, you know, I think that maybe that discussion was important because it helped her realize that, that this was not some insane request as Booker might call it, that Felix was making. I mean, he thought about this carefully. It was his choice. You know, he was not being, you know, out of his mind or anything like that. So it was important to have that discussion with him. And I think Booker might have respected this decision of Felix's also if he hadn't been so traumatized by the loss of his home planet. It's unimaginable to me what he's going through right now. But he was thinking paternalistically, right? So he he thinks that people who don't make what ordinarily would be considered the right decision should have their autonomy violated. They should be forced to do things that that they wouldn't ordinarily choose. The important thing I think about Felix here is that his decision affected himself and himself alone. If you're making decisions, even if they're autonomous, that affect others and could harm others, then ordinarily it's thought other people can get involved and interfere with your autonomous decision making. But, you know, in this case, I think there's a really strong case to be made that Burnham did the right thing here. Felix made his decision in a way that fulfilled what he saw as his last obligation to be, the delivering that whatever the gadget was with the with the family tree. The orb. Um, yeah. yeah. Before and and I want to talk about that more, but I want to before I get there, I want to note that when Burnham and Book are talking, she kind of reprises the message from the previous episode. Remember last time was all is possible. And Burnham tells Book when they're talking about the asteroid colony rescue, we can't fix everything right now. And she says they have to focus on today and what's possible at the moment, which is saving the colony. So that that is also addressing people's wants and how they make decisions about what to do, what to do right now. Okay, so we've been talking this season about a theme of connections which I think spans more than more than one episode. And that device that Felix gave to Burnham to return to the family of the man he killed, in effect, it's their family tree and their connection to the past. Here is yet another of these examples of connection that we're seeing this season. Yeah, absolutely. And I found that it was interesting that this orb, I think it's called a Laloki orb, has a tree in it. Right. And when I kind saw whole, that, I thought, a holographic projection. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. And when I, but when I saw that, I thought the world root, I thought of the world root from Quajon, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so I, I 
found this on Memory Alpha. Uh, the world root was a massive tree root system that extended around the entire planet of Quajon. To the Quajon people, it symbolized their heart and the unbroken chain of their ancestors. This cannot be a mere coincidence. This is this is a lot of symbolism here, I think. Yeah. I would note that looking at it, it doesn't work the way we would think a family tree does. She, when she, her face was scanned, and she, she appeared farther out from the trunk, and it was not on a direct branch from her father. She appeared, I mean, somewhere. It was hmm. a little bit farther out from the trunk, but it almost looked like it was on a different branch. And typically, I think in our culture, a family tree, you are at the base of the trunk, and then your parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents uh, go out in the distance. This is this is right. the opposite. This yeah. is the original, whatever your original founding population or whatever you want to say is, is, a, is the trunk and the people that descend from it go outwards. It's not what someone today who does genealogy would, would diagram out, but this is a different yeah. culture. They maybe have different ideas at how the paths and things work. So I'm not objecting to it, just mm -hmm. noting that it's kind of the reverse of how uh, a lot of us would create a family tree today. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Rodney, you often talk about connecting subplots in the episode, and so I spent some time thinking about that today, and I think that Zora expresses what might be the overall theme of this episode, mm -hmm. that it can be difficult balancing duty against emotions. And that's basically relevant to the Burnham and the Culber uh, subplots and the book subplots. You Maybe know, the, the, the Tarka and Stamets subplot also. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I just, it seemed like to me that Stamets and Tarka were getting really sort of emotionally involved in this experiment. And Saru <laughs> had to pull the plug on it, right? He had to use the kill switch. And he was putting his duty to the ship uh, over Stamets' desire to get the data, right? And I think some of that, de that desire on both of their parts was self-prestige. They were as much thinking about validating their own ideas or mm -hmm. the prestige of finding the solution yeah. as they were the bigger picture of saving all these worlds that may be threatened and things. So it was it was kind of a it, it was an emotional, fairly self-serving, if you will, goal on their part. Uh, not to say that that there won't be data that comes from it that would be helpful. Right. And Stamets also, his, he has an, an additional emotional motivation here. He promised Booker that he was going to figure out the DMA, and that's driving him too. Yeah, yeah. That moment when Tarka encouraged Saru to yell, <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. was kind of strange, but yeah, you know, to momentarily let his emotions take over, because Saru is pretty often... The logical voice, and certainly in serving as captain and protecting the ship, he is Absolutely. the logical, the rational voice. And that that moment of of just letting your emotions take over and kind of get it out of your system. In in all of the subplots, we have people balancing this question of what is their duty, what do we need to do, what are our emotions over the subject, and how do we balance the two. So thank you to Zora for that. <laughs> And Zora has emotions, right? It's I guess it may be an issue for her in, in coming episodes, maybe. It's, 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 a, it's a recent development, so yeah. yeah. Well, any final thoughts, Michael, before we 
call it a podcast? I feel like I say this in many of our episodes this season, but uh, this time it's Culber's storyline that reminds me of the COVID pandemic and particularly of the medical workers who've been helping yeah. people affected by COVID. I mean, and we hear for almost two years now, the medical professionals have been have been struggling with this. And again, I, I don't think it is intended to be a direct analogy, but I think much of our storyline this season is at least inspired by the events that were going on as the scripts were being written. Michael, it's gotta be. I just, it's just, it's, it's just the similarities is too great. I mean, you've got Culber helping the crew here with this huge problem, trying to give them hope. And, and in a way, he's in a position in which he can't give them hope. And it, that just seems like the position a lot of healthcare workers are in, you know, when they're talking to these, these patients who are about to die from COVID. Or their and, families. And they can't do yeah. anything for them, right? And so, you know, he maybe he's in a position of offering people false hope, and he feels like he's failing. I'm sure, surely there are a lot of healthcare workers out there who feel like they're failing. And I, you know, I, I really, I have, I have a lot of sympathy for them. You know, they, they, they feel they're doing their best, they're doing everything they can, and they're promising sometimes the people who are sick and, and their families to do the best they can, but knowing in the back of their minds that once you're in the hospital, your, your odds of getting back out go farther down. And uh, so, yeah, we see that in medical professionals today. And I think that is in effect, you know, Culber is not directly lying to people, but he is trying to give them hope about something that we have no idea how it's going to turn out. And right. so um, the hope, does not necessarily have a basis because we don't know where this anomaly is, where the DMA is going to be going going next. Yeah, the conversation at the end of the episode between Culver and Stamets reminds us, speaking more broadly than just healthcare workers, that mm. often people who are strong for other people may have challenges themselves that they don't share with others. One of the original inspirations for Captain Kirk was the novels of C.S. Forrester, of Captain Horatio Hornblower, who was um, a Napoleonic Wars era a Navy captain for the for the British uh, the British Navy, and Hornblower was constantly worrying about the image he presented as captain, how the crew perceived him, and knowing that he could not show any weakness at all. And I've often thought that maybe that was also why Shelby was the way she was in the best of both worlds. That, uh, I mean, you know, and we saw her as as a tough officer, but I, I suspect she also felt compelled to appear that way. And we don't really know what she was thinking when she got back to her quarters and, uh, and was by mm -hmm. herself. So um, often people who have to be strong for others have their own challenges that they don't share and they have to try to cope with themselves. Right. Luckily, Culber can, you know, open up to Stamets here, but he he's feeling compelled to be tough also or to be strong for everybody. And it's uh, wearing on him. And you've got COVID here telling him, look, dude, you need to find time to rest. He, he says to find fulfillment from something other than medical services, his job. 
um, so that he doesn't fail who he's caring for. And it was almost like he was saying, come on, find yourself a hobby in the <laughs> middle of this of this terrible crisis that <laughs> right. we know how it's going to turn out. And uh, you know, so I'm not clear really what Kovic's message was or, or what the message that the writers want the audience to take from this conversation about what you find fulfillment for. Yeah, I'm not sure either about that. I mean, we do know that people can get burnt out. And again, thinking about healthcare workers, you know, people are getting burned out, teachers and the like. It's not necessarily that they need to find a hobby or find fulfillment in something else, but just that they are able to take a break. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure either. Uh, by the way, I don't think Colbert is the only person in this position because you remember when Stamets described Tarka, he said, I've got this written down. He is so single-minded about his work. He cares about literally nothing else. And then he says, actually feels a little familiar. He said that Stam after Culver gave him the look. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Stamets is the same way. And little theory here, maybe, maybe Tarka is also the same way. Clearly, clearly he's driven. He's got the scar on the back of his neck. I think it might indicate that he was a prisoner of the Emerald Chain. And maybe like Culber, he is also escaping or trying to escape the guilt of being alive. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can see how if you're a prisoner of the Emerald Chain, if you're tortured with these gadgets and things like that, it might boost his desire to self-promote himself. I'm not sure if that if that describes his personality. You know, he's... I don't remember the exact wording, but he says, you know, I love me and I'm not going to let anything happen to me. And, right. you know, I, I can maybe see that as the outcome of a, of a really bad experience of him feeling that way about himself. Uh, but I, but I think, sure. I think like you say, he was in, in part, he was brought in to be a counterpoint. Uh, he was written into the story to be a counterpoint to Stamets and can them kind of be a foil for each other because mm. they're so similar and while they're so similar, they don't get along too well because they're so similar. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I think we are wrapping up what we have to talk about concerning this episode. As always, thank you for joining us this week. We will be back next time. It will be episode six of this season of Discovery, meaning that we're coming up on halfway through the season. I looked around and I didn't find a title for next week's episode, but we'll yeah, find that either. out in due course. You can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. Or you can subscribe directly by going to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.